this becomes a real struggle and young people themselves are wise to it. Like you keep letting God off the hook enough and all of a sudden they realize that this God that we're talking about and this God we're calling you to serve is a God who doesn't really do anything and is not a God who acts. So somehow we have to wait and wait in prayerful, in somewhat prayerful petition for God to, to do something about this. Hey everyone, welcome to the Missing Voices podcast. This is Justin Forbes, your host, and you're listening to an episode within the Youth Ministry and COVID-19 series. Our hope is to lift up the reality of youth ministry in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. You know, none of us were prepared for this. And so we've done the best we can to go out and find folks who will help us think well about youth ministry in this new, hopefully temporary reality. We will lift up signs of hope and tell stories that are just beautiful. We'll talk about practical tools that might be helpful. And we'll also talk about hard things, the challenges that we are all facing as we seek to live out our calling to love God, to love kids, uh, and to do the best we can to be faithful witnesses to God's work in the world. So I hope this is a gift to you. I hope there might be even just one thing that you can use and take away from this episode that will help you live into your calling as folks doing youth ministry. Enjoy. Okay, well, we've got Dr. Andy Root on the phone with us here. Andy, you're there? I am here. How's it going, Justin? You're here. Very good. Very good. Glad that you could jump on with us to help us think about what in the world is going on. Uh, Dr. Andy Root here is the professor of youth and family ministry at Luther Theological Seminary. He writes and researches in areas of theology, ministry, culture, and younger generations. Um, There's a list of his most recent books, which if you know anything about Andy, you know he's probably written like three more books since uh, today started. Um, So his list is already out of date. But recent ones, Pastor in a Secular Age, Ministry to People Who No Longer Need God, was in 2019. Most recent one that I'm aware of is The End of Youth Ministry, Why Parents Don't Really Care About Youth Groups and What Youth Workers Should Do About It. Kind of a crazy title for our time right now. Uh, that was in 2020. Did you sneak any other books in there, Andy? Like between those <laughs> no, two? That's, that, that's it. Yeah, that's it. For now, that's, that's it. it. Okay. Yeah. For now. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's always this um, question about like, well, what is God doing? Where is God? What, you know, uh, what does it mean to be in a relationship or to love or to be in solidarity with others? Things like this. What, what does ministry look like in this isolated uh, shelter in place? You can't actually go be together, but you kind of can through Zoom. What is ministry right now? Yeah, I think it's tough. I mean, it's really hard to figure out what that might be. Um, because like you were saying before we we uh were recording that in some ways my work is is right for this time and in other ways i feel like it's a, a, the opposite of that you know so um in some ways i've been trying to push past thinking about programs and equating ministry as as a kind of programmed space and youth ministry as a program space and now you just don't have the option like you can't really be running 
a program unless, you know, you, you've somehow figured out how to crack that code on, on Zoom or something like that. Right. But at another level, I feel like my work has also been really concerned or really focused on persons in relationship and persons in relationship as like embodied persons who communicate a lot with their body and with their presence, you know. So this really redefines what presence actually means. And I, I'm not one that thinks you can't have a deep kind of personal relational presence through the Internet or through Zoom. But I do think it's harder. I, I do. I mean, I've been joking about all the Zoom meetings I have to do that Zoom feels like uh, ability to have meetings without any sense of human spirit anymore. You know, like you get all the gross and annoying and exhausting part of meetings, but you don't get any of the kind of sense of laughing with your colleagues or being able to kind of feel this, feel and be in the same space with them. So, I mean, it, it feels like there's an opportunity here in the context of ministry where we can start to think of what we do, especially in youth ministry, beyond just managing and running programmed programs and, and recognize that ministry cannot, at, at, at the heart of it, be really about running a program. But at the same time, right. I think there's a huge challenge of how do you how do you do these this kind of relational uh, life to, together? I guess I mean that's such a kind of phrase we always throw around, but I do yeah. think that I do think that's a really a, a difficult a difficult thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I feel like um, I'm capable to be in relationship with people, you know, through things like FaceTime or Zoom or whatever, but only because of the history I had with them before that. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know if that's actually true or not, but that's how it feels right now. Like I can't imagine, um, like I can't imagine if in the fall we're still online and I start an intro course and I meet new students for the first time or, or if like, I don't know what it would even mean right now for like a new kid to come to youth group or, and it's like, great, we're going to be on zoom at seven, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know how that would really work, but I, I do feel like in some profound way, like I really miss the people that we worship with. Uh, I think you're exactly right. It's it's fascinating the way you say that, like that Zoom cannot, it just can't carry the culture. And I, I absolutely feel that. And I do sense that like the more intimate one-on-one, -on -one, you know, group of two or three people talking. I mean, I have buddies from college that we don't see each other very often. Uh, but because of this, and we've never done this before. None of us live in the same town. We got on a Zoom call together just to like hang out. <laughs> and the culture of the relationships was still, you know, it was still sort of there, but like it left us wanting even more uh, of those relationships. And so I think maybe another way to think about that would be to say that like Zoom just cannot carry the complexity of a relationship. It, yeah. it can give you the information, like you're saying, it can, it can check the box of like, I saw you, but I didn't see you. Right. Like I didn't shake or give you a hug or anything like that. Like we didn't go somewhere together. Like, so there's clearly something missing, which in some ways I think, you know, is going to help us really appreciate that when that day comes back. Um, but man, I think it'd be an incredible gift if it pushed us outside of the cult of the youth worker sort of mentality and um, helped us move towards embracing that broader uh, community of people to carry those relationships. Um, yeah, and, what, and maybe it pushes the, us too to also kind of evaluate what is culture and what kind of culture do we want to build, you know? And um, yes. how much are you as the youth worker central to that culture and how much should you be? And is that, is that even right or good too, you know? So the kind of lack of culture can also force us to ask, well, what is, what's going on here? So, yeah, I think that's true. Any other major themes from some of your books that you think would be, 
I don't know, like what would be helpful? And like, I mean, it's, I was interested to hear you say earlier that like, sure, maybe it's timely, but also in some ways it, it sort of rejects or, or fights up against the embodied focus. But what else? I mean, when it comes to building this culture that you're talking about, what are the themes would you want youth workers to be thinking about? Well, I, I think one of the more you know primary themes that that I've been thinking about related to this is is connected to the new book that's out at the end of youth ministry. Which you see how I seamlessly made the the plug for the book there, Justin. See, I'm a I'm a professional podcaster. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, but but you know that that book, the end of youth ministry, really kind of one of the maybe one of the um, I don't know if you, you can only have one spine, I guess, but one of the kind of ribs that holds the structure of that book together is the, the thinking about what is a good life and, and how do we help young people live good lives or, or, you know, how does that even function? And it's trying to trace like why the youth group itself becomes in some ways disempowered, the more ironically parents really care about their kids living a good life or feel responsible for it is probably a better way to say it. When your parents feel really mm. responsible, like you have to manage your kid's good life, then all of a sudden you need to get them involved in every activity and every, what I call the thing, you know, whether that's gymnastics or piano or whatever. And so your overinvestment actually makes youth ministry have less value than maybe it's than when it was 1988 and a good parent kind of just gave their kids space to do whatever. And kids were, you know, roaming around neighborhoods looking for something to do. But so this sense of the good life is huge, you know, and I think one of the things that happens when we become really engaged in trying to live the good life and feel like that happens through kind of accruing resources through being involved in extracurricular activities and being involved in things is that we become really future-oriented people you know and even as parents we we kind of evaluate our own worth as a parent by how we're preparing our kids for some kind of future that they're going to get into and i think one of the huge kind of existential issues of what's happened in this epidemic is that just everything ended like everything stopped you were preparing for right. your senior year of baseball and your dad had been taking you to see a hitting coach for since, you know, November or something to prepare for this. And you were going to be the starting third baseman and now it's just gone. And like, that's what your dad, not only was that you as a, you know, 11th grader or 12th grader or whatever, not only was your kind of identity and, and your kind of sense of what it meant to be living a good life connected with that, but so was your dad's like your dad driving you to 80 baseball games throughout the summer was kind of how he was living his own good life. And that's just all gone right now. So one of the crazy things is that it was so much of what we think is a good life. We project into the future. And, um, and now we just don't have that. And um, wow. we're just, we're just kind of forced to live in the moment. And this is something we haven't been formed to do very well. You know, like we almost find our identity and purpose by thinking, okay, and then next week we're doing this and then next month we're doing that. But a lot of those things not only have been canceled, we just don't know if they can happen. You know, like, can you go to camp in July or are you not going to be able to go to camp in July? I mean, huge questions. Like if you were a parent and you spent the last four or five years trying to get your kid into an elite school, um, like Flagler, and then all of a sudden you don't even know if you're going to welcome freshmen back on campus or not. You know what I mean? Like, what, yeah. what do you? What does that mean? What does that mean for how you've understood yourself and understood what a good life is? So I think that becomes a huge, a huge issue for people. And I think youth workers should be aware of parents, particularly who are living with a lot of anxiety right now. I mean, they're probably living with anxiety about will I have a job or will my corporation be able to weather this and what will that mean. But they're also asking sure. questions about like, well, what does it mean to be a parent if 
we're not driving 300 miles a weekend to go to soccer tournaments, or if we're not just trying to get yeah. on the next team or into the next school or accomplish what's in the, you know, coming, it's just, we have to live in the now. I mean, we're not good at that though. Religious communities and religious forms of practice should be good at living in the now. I mean, all, all forms of kind of religious faith try to focus on something significant about living in the moment. But as late modern Americans, particularly middle-class Americans, the, that's not the game. The game is all projection into the future, trying to live, trying to give your kid the resources to live whatever good life they might want to live in some unknown, undefined future. But for all intents and purposes, we don't have a future right now. We only have right now. Um, well, I see that anxiety in myself. I mean, as the parent of an eighth grader and a sixth grader and a bunch of younger ones, like I see that anxiety of like, I, I felt myself think to myself or, or even express to my wife, like, I'm really glad Noah, our oldest son, I'm really glad he's not like a senior in high school right now. Like that would be really hard or like, I'm really, and I think some of that I, without knowing it was attached to the value that I place on this future thing that we're moving towards, whatever that is, whether that's, you know, college or a sport or whatever. Um, and we have been stripped of those things. So I think like pastorally in this sort of environment, what is pastoral care for the young people, but also for parents? What, what would that look like? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, in, in this becomes the this, this struggle and you can see how, how we kind of punish each other on social media all the time for this in so many people I know who are dealing with this feel disempowered to actually even express that disappointment, you know, because you haven't lost your job yet. Yeah. Maybe, you know, where other people, you know, 10 million people have lost their job. So can you be upset that you don't get to watch your kid play regional baseball this year? I mean, can you really do that? Yeah. Um, you know, like the, you're, you're stuck in that too. You're stuck in the fact that, that is really hard. And that is, that is what, what you've been looking forward to. And, and so there's something just about this moment that, you know, at least in my lifetime, but I'm, you know, I think probably for the last, well, at least since world war two or something. Um, and even really before that, we have had few of these experiences where for most of human existence, you live with some kind of sense of the fragility of life. And this is one of those experiences for the, for the first time in, in our lifetime, where we see how we're actually fragile, the institutions we need to survive and the institutions that give us meaning and purpose aren't really there. And I mean, in some superfluous institutions that nevertheless are important to us, like I could have never imagined, and maybe this just shows how myopically focused I am on dumb things, but I literally could have never imagined that the NBA and the NHL and Major League Baseball could not happen. You know what I mean? Like those just felt like yeah. structures that, that were going to happen, you know, billion dollar businesses that there's no way they could shut down. And then they're just went, you know, a, a month ago or whatever, like one by one, those things just got canceled. And, you know, like yesterday we're finding out not to turn this into sports talk radio or something, but yesterday we found out like, if there is going to be sports, first of all, college, college football may not happen. The NFL is in question. And if there's going to be anything like major league baseball this year, they're going to have to be like secluded in Arizona and Fauci's like, yeah, you're gonna have to test them, you know, weekly. And they're going to have to be put on like quarantine right. in a hotel. And you know, right. like this stuff is kind of crazy. You just, you just think, it, you just didn't think it could happen. And you know, I was thinking of my right. own kids, like no, at home today at one o'clock and thinking when I was a kid, I would have dreamt to be out of school like this and could have just never <laughs> imagined that school could get canceled and just be like, done because there's some invisible thing making people sick, you know? 
Right. No, I mean, when when the major sports leagues uh, shut down, I was like, oh, like that's what got my attention. Me too. I was like, wait a minute. This is a real thing. And it, I guess it reveals uh, something about me, but I'm like, oh, this is a real thing because so much money was flowing through those. So to shut those down would require a lot. I mean, like yeah. it would take a lot to shut down that economic system. Uh, wait, what is this? And then it really caught my attention. But yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I've never felt so vulnerable and I don't even, it's not even home for me yet. But, you know, with time, I think everyone, it's sort of going from out there to in here. Yeah. You know, like we all, we all know someone who uh, has either been sick or has lost a family member kind of a thing or, or we're about to, right? Depending on when you yeah. listen to this. Uh, right. It's funny, I was re-listening to the... Um, the intro as we sort of pivoted from our missing voices project uh, series of, of interviews to this section on uh, coronavirus. I was like, you know, Hey, last week there was 12,000 confirmed cases and this week there's a couple hundred thousand. Well, now I'm like, do like, we're like 2 million cases in the world right now and 600, 700,000 in the U S like even just in a week's time or two weeks time, since I've started doing these episodes, the whole thing has escalated so quickly. Yeah. And like my thought of our summer plans feels foolish yeah. to even making any plans, you know? Right. Uh, I asked my wife, what are we going to, you know, I wake up and like, what does your day look like? And she's like, well, a lot like yesterday <laughs> and probably tomorrow, you know, right. like, like you said, you're longing for the airport, but there is still like ministry in the midst of this where everyone has been slowed down. Everyone's at home. I mean, some people yeah. are still really busy, of course, uh, but yeah. man, what in the world does youth ministry look like? I mean, do you have, youth workers who've been reading your books and they're saying, I've been doing the place sharing thing. Like I'm there with them. I'm, I'm talking about Christian practices. I want to do friendship. Um, but Andy, like, what do we do now? Well, actually what you do, I mean, there's, there's, there's two things I think that you can do um, maybe, and these are going to feel very unpractical here, but we are in uh, moments where we need deeply practical stuff and we can't actually access a lot of it. But um I mean, the, the thing you had said earlier about vulnerability is really interesting because we have been on a certain kind of path here for, well, I guess since the uh, the public awareness of Brene Brown's, you know, um, TED Talk or whatever, where vulnerability has become like, you know, yeah. something that's been a pretty big deal. But one of the things that's pivoted in this invulnerability is we've, we've tended to be talking about vulnerability, like you yourself in your own project of yourself, in your disappointment with yourself, need to be vulnerable about the ways that you're not living up to who you want to be, or you just feel vulnerable when it comes to if you're good enough, like those kind of personal, almost personal psychological vulnerabilities. But what we're facing now, which will radically change this generation, is the vulnerability of just institutional structures, like the vulnerability of larger economic realities, the, the vulnerability of even just being able to trust going to a grocery store, the vulnerability of their school. And um, so this will be a generation like you and I are talking about like sports and like school and things like that, where we lived maybe, maybe in a crazy way, maybe in a way that wasn't so healthy, but we've just lived with a kind of deep sense that our, at least the institutional structures we lived in were not very vulnerable. And now we're going to have a generation who will live with deeply sense of, of, of vulnerable institutions. Now that could lead them to be like the greatest generation or generations past in this country who lived with vulnerable institutions and worked really hard and invested significantly in institutions to make them strong and for us to inherit 
the strength of those institutions, or it could become mm. a wide open craziness. So I think we do have to help people be able to confess that vulnerability because um, we all feel that. So in that sense, this thing is affecting all of us and making us all vulnerable. And um, you can't mm. really not question that. So that's one thing we can do is kind of pastoral care in that way. But the other really practical thing we can do and I guess there's a theological element to that vulnerability, which is that you were always more vulnerable than you thought anyhow. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like you were always mm -hmm. nearer death than you thought you were. And um, the, the Christian story in some sense has to have people who recognize the finitude of their own humanity or the sense that you are a creature and therefore you are vulnerable. And there's a certain kind of crazy illusion about late modernity where we've a pretty particularly Western American late modernity where we've kind of thought like, well, we're beyond that. Like we don't really have to face death every day or vulnerability around every corner, but you do. So I think thinking theologically about that, thinking about how you do ministry with that, giving people space to confess that vulnerability, not just as an internal reality, but as a very external reality. And then the second thing is very, mm. very practical and is very, very hard and particularly very, very hard for youth workers, let alone kind of pastors and other ministers, is now you just have to wait. And you had to always wait. Like this is a God, the, the, the God, the God of Israel is a God who arrives and shows up. This is a God who, 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 who's a, a God who is um, an event who arrives and, and, and shows up at times and at, at places. And it doesn't matter if you are a you know, devote pietist Christian, or you, you know, read your Bible every day, or you do everything right, or you have the biggest church in town, you cannot control God's arriving. So the Christian life is a fundamentally patient life that just has to wait. And we're not good at that, especially in America, we're not good at that. And in youth ministry, we've been particularly bad. Like the whole rhetoric around youth ministry is rushing to get kids committed to something. Because if you wait, <laughs> if you have to wait, their eternal salvation or um, just the, the 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 viability of the church itself as, a, in, as an institution will, will disappear. And now you don't have a choice. You just have to wait. Um, and that be, that's huge. And then the third thing, and I know I said there's two, but now I'm adding the third one is I, I think there is a huge struggle for us to have to think about how do we think about God being active in this reality? And it is bad theology. I think and this is where we're stuck. It's really bad theology to say God caused this to happen. Yeah. I think that's bad theology. However, that's an ugly ditch. There's also another ugly ditch that we're less right. comfortable with. At least those of us who've gone to more mainline institutions and things like that is that if you say god doesn't cause this you you can race really quickly into in a sense where god doesn't cause anything and so right. you know like there's there is just such a fine line as a pastor and minister to not having a god who is giving us these this this terrible thing because you know someone said a bad word or someone had a political view that this that god didn't like but at the other end of it, if you keep on saying God didn't cause this or God has nothing to do with this, all of a sudden you have a God who doesn't cause or doesn't have anything to do with anything at all. And so, right. you know, we have to find a way to talk about that. And uh, I've been reading some of Karl Barth's, uh, the, the, the early 20th century theologians, um, sermons around World War One when he was a pastor. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the things Bart says really boldly that I just don't know if a lot of us can get away with saying is like in the kind of sense of in, in, in the chaos of World War One, he's saying God both tears down, but God tears down so God can build up. And that's a hard thing to say right now. Like it's part of this, oh, yeah. you know, God's tearing down, but always for God's gracious building up. And I actually even feel kind of uncomfortable saying that on this podcast, but this becomes a real yeah. struggle and young people themselves are wise to it. Like you keep letting God off the hook enough and all of a sudden they realize that this God that we're talking about and this God we're calling you to serve is a God who doesn't really do anything and is not a God who acts. So somehow we have to wait and wait in prayerful in somewhat prayerful petition for God to, to do something about this, for God to act in the midst of this, that God to at least give us the wisdom to understand what God is up to in this and be willing to confess our vulnerability in the midst of it. So maybe it's not to confess like we as a nation have done bad things, but it is to confess that we've believed the lie that we're not vulnerable. And now we confess our vulnerability and seek for God in the midst of it. But these are really, these are really messy theological issues before us. (laughs) Right. I was going to say that does not feel uh, simple or clean in any way, but it does feel honest. I mean, I love the idea well, I don't love the idea. I hate the idea. What am I saying? I hate the idea of embracing the vulnerability of all the things that I rely on for my day-to-day life. Um, but man, that seems true. I mean, I think about my father's experience of institutions, like the idea that, you know, an institution would take care of you if you were committed to it for a long-term, you know, like a long-term career, like that began to wane and sort of disappeared. And I, I didn't even have that notion. I wasn't like the idea of being a company man, never made sense to me or something, you know, like that, I would pivot, do multiple careers, whatever. That's fine. That sounds exciting. You know, the idea that I would be able to rely on an institution to take care of me was not a part of what I thought in terms of work, but man, I never took for granted major league baseball or the grocery store or schools. And so it is an interesting idea to see all of these things deconstructing, but it does push me into that waiting, but waiting feels horrible. Like what are you supposed to do while you wait? Like that's my, um, my sort of annoying question that feels very juvenile and immature to say, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, what is active waiting? What does that look like? Um, as we literally are just at home waiting. Yeah. Well, I think what it is, I mean, there is a kind of waiting that is just, that's just hunkered down and scared of the world, or there's a kind of waiting that just pacifies itself with a lot of Netflix, which actually I'm doing a lot of myself, but, um, but there's also a waiting, I think, or the faithful kind of waiting that the church is called to is a waiting that continues to always be perceiving and asking, where is God moving? What does this mean? Where are we being led? Um, but then there's also a waiting that is filled with certain distinct historical Christian practices, like waiting as we pray waiting with one another, even when we can't bodily be with one another. I mean, it's why even these, as as kind of annoying and hard as they are, these Skype church services are important at the very least to see each other enough to just say, we're we're waiting, we're waiting and and we need to wait with others. Um, But yeah, waiting with others in that way. And then I think confession and prayer become huge, you know? So, you know, in my, in my Bonhoeffer uh, book, my Bonhoeffer's Youth Worker book, which is, you know, now this is an ugly plug for that book. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I talk about Life Together where Bonhoeffer talks about confession. And so, it would you know, you want the real practical, like, brave thing to do in your youth ministry is try to get other 
other adults in the church to do Skype calls or do FaceTime calls or Zoom calls one-on-one with young people to check in. But what if you set up between young people or maybe between adults and young people mutual confession where you actually got on Skype and confessed your sin to one another or can confess yeah. your, your anxieties and vulnerability to one another, you know, like, uh, yeah. that, that, that's something that could be done. And in some sense, like the Christian tradition, at least the Catholic Christian tradition has had a sense of a media between the confessor and the one who's confessed. Now, usually it's been a piece of wood or a cloth or something between the confessor and the one who's confessing. But maybe, uh, I mean, you know, there's a kind of sense where there is a cloth, there is a medium between you and the young person or the, between the two young people uh, when they go on to, on the, onto uh, Zoom. I mean, the, the internet becomes in some ways that medium, but it can still be a space of confession. And, uh, you know, maybe there's better ways to do it than that, but uh, maybe that's something we do in this time is instead of thinking about programs and what will kids like and what will keep them coming, they're not coming at all. So what would it be like to, to try to reach out to them and gather them and say, we're going to wait together. We all need someone to wait with, but we also need a, a vision, a bigger horizon of hope inside the waiting. I mean, it's, it's terrible. Right. And I guess that's, that would be my answer to your point. Like one of the things that sucks about waiting, that the worst thing about waiting is when you lose the moral horizon of something good that you're waiting for. And this right. is part of the issue of being in a kind of secular age where we don't really believe in a transcendent God who acts or causes things anymore. Um, none of us want to say God causes, but at another level, if you have a God who doesn't cause or do anything, you lose the larger moral horizon of hope that can actually help us through this. And people need that, man. They need they need that sense. So telling them to wait isn't just say, sit on your hands and don't do anything and just let this time out. It's saying, okay, now we have to start forming even our identities around a vision of hope of, of what comes of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be together. Um, when we can't be together, you know, um, yeah. we can start to redefine that. Well, like the idea that hope and, and sort of maintaining that horizon, uh, that feels amazing to me, but I, I think there's something about, I don't know what we're allowed to hope for right now. Like, um, or, or what would be right to hope for. Like it feels, I don't know, it feels sort of vapid to say, well, I just want to get everything back to normal. Yeah. Right. But I yeah, get well, that impulse. Yeah. There's a part of me that misses some of what was normal, but it doesn't feel like that's not really what I'm hoping for, but that's what I sort of uh, default to. Yeah. Well, and that's the formative element, I think, for this, because I'm with you, man. Like what I resemble, what you're saying, I resemble hoping for just my life to get back to normal. You know what I mean? Like that's that, sure. that's what I'm hoping for. But I think what Christian hope really is, of course, is hope in the coming of Jesus Christ, hope in the arrival of God, that hope has to kind of take that that Christological shape. And, um, and this is a, maybe this is an opportunity. Maybe this is God tearing down to rebuild which is that we've put our hope in so many other things, like even the hope that is going to get me through the day that I get to turn on the baseball game at seven o'clock tonight and at least disappear into that for a while. That's gone. So how do I now reassess what it really means to hope? And, uh, and it does ask different questions, deeper questions about what even is salvation and what does that look like? And um, what do we need to be mm-hmm. saved from? And um, I think these are all big questions that we can, we can wrestle with. But I think what happens for us in all of youth ministry is that this is the end of models. Like you just models and programs, maybe they'll come back, maybe they will. But for now, 
they're gone. So what does it mean to find some way to gather into hope, into weight, into confess vulnerability, and um, even to be able to confess, I just want, I just want it to be February 10th again, man. I mean, I don't because I live in Minnesota and it's freezing, but I just want the pattern of my life to be like it's February, right. you know, February 5th. And uh, right. that might not ever happen, um, but it probably more than right. likely isn't going to happen until February 5th, 2021. And we can only really know that's going to happen when we're all lined up to get a shot in our arm of a, of a vaccine. Right. Yeah. So in terms of particular practices here, uh, you talked about confession and sort of embracing or at least confessing this vulnerability that we all are much closer uh, and, and are vulnerable than maybe we've been willing to admit in the past. This sort of active waiting for God together and that the, the hope that's on the horizon is this hope of God's arrival, of God's coming. Um, and I wonder, like, as you're saying that, I, I think to myself, look, where does storytelling uh, play a role here? Because I feel like something that has given me... Um, well, I guess it has enabled me to uh, hold on to hope in a way or to be uh, in, in the face of hope has been people sort of sharing signs of hope or, or telling stories of, of beauty in the midst of all this. <clears throat> and I think about the phenomenon of John Krasinski's uh, Some Good News deal, you know, like that, that little good news show or whatever. That feels like a provocative sort of counterintuitive thing to do right now when there's nothing but fear and anxiety. We're going to start lifting up stories of hope or stories of beauty, not necessarily like in a sort of vapid, empty denial of reality, but in a sort of prophetic way. I mean, how do you see storytelling play out with youth ministry right now? Or does that even fit? No, I think it fits. I think it actually becomes the tissue that holds all those things together. You know what I mean? Um, but I mean, this becomes the challenge because we still do live with these engines um, the, these, the, the, you know, these computers and these social media sites and, and these phones that deliver us kind of snippets of stories everywhere. And we need story mm -hmm. as human beings. We absolutely need story. And some of the references that you just made are really, really significant. And we need to kind of hold those up, but I guess we're also going to need a hermeneutic to interpret those stories. Um, because what's going to happen yeah. in, in some ways we're going to get through this, whether it just radically changes our life or whether we find, a, you know, someone finds a vaccine in the next six weeks and, you know, gets a statue in Washington, DC for, you know, bringing us back to normal or whatever, but we're going to get through this. And at some point we're going to have to take some kind of stock of what saved us, you know, what actually did, did save us. And, um, and we're going to, those narratives are going to come out. So we, we have to be able to start even interpreting stories now of what, what is actually hope and what is sentimentality? What is actually hope that reflects the crucified God who comes and brings new life? And what is just uh, human beings being nice to each other, you know? And I think one of the elements, there's a, that's, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast to talk about that. But one of the elements that will separate stories that are birthing this, this, the kingdom of God, that birthing God's God's hope, God's God's arriving hope, are that they will take the shape of confessed vulnerability that finds life in the confession of vulnerability, and the kind of stories that ignore vulnerability or demonize vulnerability. Um, these stories could even be moving and emotive, but maybe they are not the kind of stories that really reflect God's coming. So. We need story. Right. Story will be necessary, but we're also going to have to interpret story. But maybe another common like practice that we should do with young people is to ask them to tell us stories. 
and then just help them start interpreting each other's stories. But my suggestion would be not to gather eight people on Zoom and then say, okay, so-and-so is going to tell us a story. I just don't think Zoom works for storytelling, but they have <laughs> the technology before them that's very cheap. They all have it to tell a story and they can make it as a video. They can make it as their own podcast. They can um, write a poem. I mean, they can do that and then share that with each other. But I, I don't think it will work try to use Zoom as a surrogate for gathering together and telling stories. But you could have right. someone create a video, share it on a Zoom conversation, and then have people make their own story interpreting it or write a song. or you know, do, There's all sorts of things that they can do now. Um, but I think one of the traps will be let's just use Zoom uh, as a way to have kids get on it and tell stories. Uh, I just don't think it works um, that way. Um, it doesn't work for me in Zoom that way. But they could definitely sit down, write a song, share it with people, and have other people then find another storytelling medium to reflect on it and interpret it. Yeah, that idea that we need a hermeneutic to determine is this sentimental or is this actually something sort of grounded in the coming of God like that? I, I, I imagine most of us are settling for sentiment right now and that we're settling for um, band-aids, you know, when really we're looking for resurrection. Absolutely. Um, and the church, and I think the church in particular youth ministry has to be on guard against sentiment. We, we just have to remind the world in our, in humility, remind the world that sentiment will not do, uh, that we need real hope, um, because we are creatures and that's the vulnerability confession that maybe is, I don't want to call it a good thing, but maybe is the being tore down to be rebuilt is that uh, to really get the depth of the Christian story, you have to confess that you are a creature, that you are in need of, that you are, that you are up against vulnerability and death, and you need some kind of hope from outside of you to save you because you are fundamentally an organic creature being and you are not God. And, uh, and we can kind of hide ourselves from that in, in late modernity, you know? So, um, sure. yeah, we need, those, we need those ways to interpret those stories, sure. Holy cow, man! Of course, last couple of minutes we like land on something pretty significant, and um, you are not God. You are an organic creature in need of something outside of yourself. Death and resurrection, hope. These are some pretty incredible ideas that I think are whether our youth workers know to give those uh, to give that language to these uh, expressions and experiences and feelings or not. I think that's what so many of us are dealing with right now. So. Andy, as we close our time together, would you be willing to offer a blessing or a benediction of sorts to those who might be listening who are wrestling with these very issues? I would. I'd be honored to do it. So here's my benediction for all those listening and for those youth workers out there. Go into the world, a world that you can't go very far in right now, but go into this world and know that you are a creature. And out of the confession of your creatureliness and the vulnerability of your creatureliness, I pray and know and in hope confess that you will find the God who is creator bringing life out of death. So go in peace and serve the Lord. Amen to that. Andy, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. It's a gift to share this with other folks. Um, I have a feeling we might be picking up more copies of the end of youth ministry and uh, reconsidering what the heck we're doing right now. <laughs> Absolutely. So thanks. I appreciate it, man. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Justin. It's great talking with you, man. See you later. You too. Bye-bye.
Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Missing Voices podcast. I hope that this focus on youth ministry in the midst of this pandemic uh, was helpful to you in some way. I hope that there was maybe even just one moment during this last episode, maybe the benediction or, or, or the signs of hope, uh, something that was a gift to you and maybe helps you carry out your work uh, that you have before you. You can follow what we're up to at missingvoices.flagler.edu, missingvoices.flagler.edu, and we hope that you are well. The work you are doing is incredibly important, and we want to figure out ways to be a part of that with you. Take care.